All right, good evening, church. It's good to see everyone tonight. If you don't know who I am, I'm, I'm Pastor Allen. I'm one of the pastors here. Just moved here two months ago with my family. We're going to be hopefully starting a church on the west side of town. And Carter has allowed me to come in and uh, just to serve with you guys for, uh, for the next few months. And so, uh, so now... Here I am. So we are opening um, the word tonight. It is a great privilege for me to do that with you tonight. And this, these Proverbs series, we're towards the end. And I'm, when I was looking at all those passages as you, was re, as you read that, uh, I felt like that what I was being asked to do was to, to hug a sequoia tree. Like just, okay, there's a sequoia, now hug it. It takes probably 10 people to go around the thing. And uh, here we are. Um, because I got to deal with breasts and the rod all in, in, in the same passages, and I hope I don't confuse the two. And so that would be really interesting, and I hope it's not live. But I would like to start off with a story about me and my dad. I'll take you all the way back. Um, you know, so I'm 40 ish, 41. And so back in 1995, I was between my freshman and sophomore year of college. My parents were about to divorce. And so they decided, I'm not sure why this was a good idea, but they decided we're going to take a family vacation and try to figure this thing out. And so we went to Destin, Florida, and one, the, the last night we were there, we went to a bar grill. There was, I remember, it's like it was yesterday, there was a band almost as good as these guys. Where did they go? Um, uh, man, it, it, does, does Brandon not look like Jack Johnson and Bruno Mars mixed together? It's just... But better, you know, in a better way. With Beyonce's skin, it's just, he's amazing. Um, <clears throat> so there was a guy, there was a reggae band, and they were playing, and, um, and so my mother came up to me, and she said, Alan, uh, your dad doesn't love me anymore, and I'm leaving. And I was like, oh, no, she can't leave. And I, I interpreted what she said I'm leaving the family. And all she meant was I'm leaving the bar and going back to the room. So 19-year-old Alan, in all his anger, marches up to his father. And I go up to him, punch him on the chest like, Dad, we're leaving right now as a family. It was like 10 o'clock. You know, we just got there. And, I'm, and I didn't give, a time, give him any time to answer. I just march away. And, and so I start walking my mom outside. We're leaving the, the restaurant. I'm, I'm just assuming my dad's coming. And I hear footsteps getting closer and closer, faster and more rapidly. And then, and then a, a boom, just someone pushes me from behind. And I turn around. I'm like, oh, no. And it's like, boy, what would you say to me? And boom, he pushes me again. And he pushes, keeps pushing me. It's like, dad, slow down here. And, um, and, he, and he pushed me so many times, I hit his head hat off his head, and now you got to understand thing, something about my dad. Um, you know, he is up there with, like, McGregor and fighting. Like, he went, as in high school, he um, kind of had the built of McGregor, but without the tats, and, uh, and, he, and he didn't, he lost half the teeth in high school because he was fighting all the time, um, and so, so he rare to, to throw a punch at me, and he, and he hit me in the jaw. And I could tell, I could tell that he was holding back what he, because he would have knocked me out cold if he would have hit me with all, his, all thought he had. And, and in that moment, I was just like, oh my gosh, my dad hit me. And it was the first time and the only time he ever hit me, but he just, that began this really bitter uh, rivalry between my dad and I. And this story that I'm telling you, I don't know if you have stories like that. It's one in a million. And it's no, no secret that 
we live in a country and a, and a, and a time where families are broken. And, and they're so broken that we're having to redefine families. Um, breaking down in, in, in this family is, is calling for new definitions. Um, even in Miami, where fa- La Familia is like the core of the city, um, I, do, I don't have my notes here, but if you go to the next slide, there's a, there's a, some, there's a quote I have from this article that was uh, called The Changing America. Yeah, the increasing numbers of blacks marry whites, atheists marry Baptists, men marry men, women marry women, women, Democrats marry Republicans, and start talk shows. I'm not sure what that refers to. Um, good friends join forces as part of the, uh, the voluntary kin movement, sharing medical directives, wills, even adopting one another legally. Um, the next one. And then single, uh, single people live alone and proudly consider themselves families of one, more generous and civic-minded than so-called greedy marrieds. And they conclude this article by saying, it's the, it's the great American paradox we value marriage as the center of civilized society. And at the same time, we value our liberty and the pursuit of personal happiness and the right to leave a bad marriage. Marriage as an institute lost much of, much of its power over our lives, but marriage as a relationship became more powerful than ever. The trend has only intensified with time. The less we need marriage, the more we expect from it. Wow. I mean, because you can't get it out of society. It's something that's built in us. We need familia. We need to be a part. We need to belong to someone and somewhere. And if we don't have the traditional family, we're going to redefine it and make something else. So I have four points tonight, not three, four. I do I do, do points. So, um, And the first one is that the family is central to God's word. This is going to be a really quick point. The big point's the second one, and everything else is quick after that, just in case you want like pacing this. Uh, so family is central to uh, God's world. And so from the beginning of time, and forgetting of, the, of, of when God created all things, when he made man on the sixth day, he made man, woman, man and woman, and he made both of them in the singular image of God. And so it took both Adam and Eve to reflect this this glory of God in man and woman. In fact, it took really all of, it takes all of humanity uh, to reflect this image. All, all humanity. It's not, so he didn't just place his image just on individuals, but he placed his image on family. Now, at the front of your uh, bulletin, I have this quote. You can read it on the screen too. Just kind of the implications of this Trinitarian image and identity. It says, God is persons in community. Human personhood, too, is defined in relational terms. You can no more have a relationless person than you can have a childless mother or a parentless son. The Trinitarian understanding of our humanity suggests we would define ourselves by our network of relationships in which we live. I am father, husband, church member, child of God. This makes me unique. No one else shares the same matrix of relationships. Kind of think of it like if someone said a deck of cards, like all those little identities you have, and you can can configure it in lots of different ways, but that's unique to you. But, going back to the quote, it also defines me in relation to other people. I am not autonomous. I am a person in community. 
I cannot be, now listen to this, I cannot be who I am without regard to other people. Think about that. Like, like our, 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 even our identity, we can't even understand who we are outside of family. This perhaps is the most significant cultural gap that the church in the West has to bridge, and that is true. That is, I just really think that is very, very true. And the Bible teaches that the family is central to the world. Let's now see what's central to the family. This is our second point. The second point is, is that wisdom, we're in a series of wisdom, right? So i got to say this. Wisdom is central to the training of the family. Um, and all throughout the book of Proverbs, you see this dialogue between the father and the son, and the mother and the, and the father are talking to their children. In fact, when King Solomon ordered that this be compiled, he, he was, it was an instruction manual for his prince to become a king. And so he was using this as a practice. And it was, sometimes it was, uh, it was said that, uh, that when they're walking down the road, it was designed in such a way where the father would call out one line and the son would, would, would say the next line. You've probably done this with songs and different things. Like trust, and the father would say, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And the son would say, and lean on, on your own understanding. And then the father would say, acknowledge him in all your ways. And he would say, and he will make your path straight. And so that was kind of the design of the Proverbs as a teaching tool uh, to have these pithy statements that can get into the bones of their children. Because, see, see children, it's, laws are not enough to train children. Laws can train in obedience, but laws can't train it in wisdom. And that's where most of life is lived, in the, not in the black and white, but in the gray. And so here... Um, he says wisdom, and, and there's all these things that go through it, but for family, it, it is central. And there's three ways it is central. And the first is this, is that wisdom protects the family from folly and disaster. The, and, uh, and some Proverbs 2 says in verse 16, it will save you from the adulteress or from the foreign woman, uh, from the wayward wife and from her seductive words who has left the partner of her youth um, and has ignored the covenant she has made before God. Now, Carter, I've heard him say this, and I've heard other pastors in this series say this, but I need to repeat it, that all throughout the, uh, the, the book of Proverbs, one of the things that organizes it is Lady Wisdom, she's personified, and Dame Folly. There's two women at the beginning and end of this whole book, and they're calling out to the, the princes, the sons and daughters, saying, follow me. And if you follow Lady Wisdom, she gives you life. But if you follow Dame Folly, it only leads to destruction. That's what this is saying here. And so in general, he's saying don't follow Folly. It will lead you to destruction. And in, and in, in particular to this proverb, I mean, it's very traditional but very true, sex outside of marriage only leads to destruction. Now, what I just said is ludicrous to most people in Miami, and especially in Brickell. I just, like, what? Like, I know, we know people that won't show up because if we said that, they would not show up. Um, the friends that we have here in this city. Now, I can argue that that is true based on personal hurt, whether it be emotional or spiritual or psychological. I can go that route, but I think a more interesting and more compelling route is to take the longer view of sex and take the longer view of marriage and say, look, think about it this way. The most intimate moment of your life that you have with the, most, the person that you love the most 
has the potential to incarnate into another living human being who has the potential to, to incarnate that love into others. Now, that, is, that, that whole blooming, flourishing process only is safe in the context of marriage. That's, that's just one argument. Now, I can, I can say that, but it, it's so great as a pastor when you um, have things that come out in the, in, the stu- in, the, in the media that supports this. There's a study, a big study that was done by the American Inst- Enterprise Institute, and it was caught the attention of um, notable newspapers like the New York Times and the Washington Post. And they had this, uh, uh, this study, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's called the Millennial Sequence Success. And, and I, I won't review all of it, but I'll just give you the bullet points. The, and the first finding is this. This is their big point. Millennials are much more likely to flourish financially if they follow the success sequence, getting at least a high school degree, working full time, and marrying before having any children in that order. And then it has some data here. While 55% of the 28 to 34-year-old millennial parents had their first child before marriage, the vast majority of millennials who married before having any children are now steering clear of poverty and appear to be heading toward realizing the American dream. Now, I'm not trying to push you towards the American dream, but that's just fascinating, right? Like, there's there's data now that says if you marry before having children, then there probably won't be in poverty. I mean, that's pretty, I mean, none of us wants our kids in poverty, but if you have children out of wedlock, there is a way higher risk of that happening. Um, if you want that study, I'd be, I'd be happy to give that to you afterwards. So that's the first. Wisdom protects, protects the family. And the second is this. Wisdom comes from discipline. Wisdom comes from discipline. And there's two Proverbs I want to read here. Uh, the rod of correction imparts wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. In Proverbs 22, 15 says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Now, it's interesting what it says what's in the heart of a child. It's not innocence, but folly. That's what's in the child, right? And to get it out, it says you got to use discipline. Here it talks about, as a metaphor, a rod. You gotta, you gotta, I mean, think about it. I mean, children, they're foolish when, you, when, they're, when they're born. And, and they don't know the dangers of the world, especially when they're really young. And so a lot of the discipline is like literally trying to save their life from dying. Like if you don't obey me, you're going to die. And so uh, that's what, there's folly up in there. One pastor, he defines folly this way. It is the willful refusal to grow up and make moral decisions. In other words, it's perpetuating childhood into adulthood. And we see that today, Right. Now, I'm not going to go that route because I'm in Brickell and you don't, you don't struggle with that, right? This, that's for another place, another, another part of town. You guys are got it all together, maybe. I don't know. Maybe I don't know you really well, well enough. Um, but this is, uh, the age does not equal wisdom here. Uh, age and wisdom are not synonymous things. But what drives out the folly here is this discipline. Now, the ride here, I mean, it does, it is a picture of wisdom, but it, of discipline, uh, but uh, I'll just, I, I think that what it's saying here is that corporal punishment is okay. I'm, uh, I think that that's not the only way, 
but it, it, it is a way to bring discipline to your young kids. Now, I'm not saying do that to like a, you know, a 25-year-old or something like that. That's, that's, he will clobber you and probably kill you if you did that. Um, but look at, let's look at the, the famous Proverb 22.6. It says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Now, in the way he should go could also be translated according to his way. In other words, train up your child according to the way he or she receives instruction, right? And so, it's like for, for my kids, you know, spankings, and when they were young, worked for most of my kids, but not all of them. I mean, I had this one kid, that's one, one daughter, uh, and she uh, had a booty of iron, and I could... <laughs> I could spank her over and over and over again. I did. I'm like, are you, I would, even if I did it 100 times, it would not affect her. She was tough. It just didn't break her. And, it's, you know, there's a saying like, you know, whip them till they're sweet. Uh, she wasn't sweet after 100 licks. I didn't do 100 licks. But you know what I mean. It was, it was not working. And I have another kid, like if I spank her one time, and she, I mean, she, it was such a traumatic experience for her. For me just to even mention that I might even consider that I might spank her, she freaks out. I can give her that. And, she, and she's sweet after that. She repents. Um, so it's different for each kid, right? It takes wisdom. But the point is, is that we need to train our children in, this, in discipline because the, the idea here is that when they're young, the main thing they need to learn is obedience, and obedience is about right and wrong. And, and, if, and, if, and after they learn obedience, when they get to like the middle age school era, it's all about wisdom. And wisdom is not about just what's right and what's wrong. It's, it's nuanced, right? And here's the, here's the issue. Like you cannot teach wisdom to your kids if they don't learn obedience first. Because if, they, if, they're, if they're just learning obedience, if they are not obedient to you, they're not going to obey any other authority in, in the world. And so they can't get the nuance of wisdom, which is a lot of times it's about what's good and what's best or what's bad and what's worse. And it's hard sometimes to discern those things. So that's why it's so important. And I, and I have a sweet story of one daughter um, uh, my oldest, she, I think she was converted through one of her spankings. I mean, I really do. We were talking about it. She, I don't remember exactly what she had done. She was probably around four or five. And I remember telling her, it's like, you know, what, I, Daddy, I, it's like, I love you and I'm doing this. And that's, we're about to get that in a minute. But I love you and I'm doing this. But I want you to know that, that God the Father spanked his son too. He spanked him so many times that it killed him. And I'm not going to kill you right now. But the father killed his son because he loves you. And whatever, I wasn't expecting anything emotional to happen, but she just broke down in tears. And she just started weeping, and she was saying she was sorry, how thankful she was. And she immediately had a different attitude and a, uh, an outlook after that. So I don't know. Maybe we'll find out in heaven. But it's, she changed after that. The next is uh, Proverbs 3, which kind of gets into what we're just talking about. Verse 11, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father delights in him. Now, despising, when I was reading this, I'm just thinking of middle schoolers because I have middle schoolers, right? 
And, and there's a lot of despising going on in middle schools. Like, ugh. Like, you tell them, like, ugh, and they roll their eyes. And you can just tell immediately that they're not receiving that well. Um, but the writer of Hebrews picks up this verse that we just read, and he actually has a commentary on it. And he says this. And he actually expands this discipline concept, not to just children, but to any believer, anybody who has God as their father. And he says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For whatever son is not disciplined by his father, if you are not disciplined, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. The absence of God's correction it implies rejection. But the presence of his discipline in your life ex- expresses the father's love. Look, look, I'm telling you as a dad, and other dads in this room can verify this if you've done this, it's, easy not to, it's easier not to discipline. It just is. I mean, it's harder to get off your butt and go in there and, and, and calm yourself down and talk to them in a loving tone and discipline them. And it's hard. But I do it because I love them. And think if, if I love my daughter that way, my daughter's that way, think how much God is crazy in love with you. And, and just think about this. The more intense you feel like the discipline is, it's the more it reveals more the heart of God for you in love. I love this quote. It says, God whispers his love to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts. In our pains. Okay, now with that in your mind, let's. I'm, I'm giving you a little break, like a minute break. Everyone, see DJ Khaled. Uh, he has he has a little video about his son. I really love that song. If you heard of that one, but my kids love it too because he's so excited about his first son. He's so excited. He, he's even made him like record producer, right, Carter? Uh, and have you seen? If you go and look at the uh, album, he's just like a little fat kid sitting on the side of a, a hot tub, and that's the picture of his album. And he is so in love with his son. And I told my girls, like, listen, you listen to this song, and that love that he has for his son is so much greater than their father has for you. He is so in love with you. And you have to remember that when, when discipline comes. And the last thing I want to say about wisdom is wisdom not only protects us, not only comes from discipline, but also always honors parents. It's always honoring parents. If a man curses his father or mother... His lamp will be snuffed out in pitch darkness. Now, this proverb is literally the opposite of the fifth commandment. You know, if you remember the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, for if you do, it will go well with you and you will live long in the land. But here, if you if, don't curse, ble, uh, honor uh, your father and mother. And, and the lamp being snuffed out in pitch darkness, I mean, you're going to be cut off. You're not gonna, it's not going to go well for you. And the next proverb says in verse 22, 23, Listen to your father who gave you life, and do not despise your mother when she's old. The father of the righteous man has great joy. He who has a wise son delights in him. May your father and your mother be glad, and may she, may she who gave you birth rejoice. Now, now, the opposite of despise in this passage is honor. Honor. And, and, and God is so wise in how he commands us. He doesn't say love your parents, there's no command here to say love your parents. Not, that's important, but that's not the command. 
He, it doesn't say trust your parents. It doesn't even say obey your parents. I mean, that's in Pauline's letters, and, and, and that's for little kids. But there's only one command that spans all of our life, and that is honor your father and mother. And it's not a very sentimental command. And I think a lot of times us in the West, um, the Latinos and the Hispanics get a little bit better because they have like La Familia Extendida. They have a little better sense of that. But, um, but we have a hard time with honor. It's not something that we get intuitively. Um, the folks in the East and Latinos, yes, they get it better. Uh, and so if uh, I'm preaching at Crossbridge, I, I've got, it's not a real sermon, I guess, unless I quote Tim Keller. And so um, here are some several suggestions from Tim Keller. I'm kidding. I'm really kidding. Um, about how some suggestive ways on how we might honor our parents, especially as adults. He's talking to professionals who are, have their, live out of the house of their parents, and they're on their own. Number one is find appropriate cultural symbols of honor. Find appropriate cultural symbols, whether that be let them sit in the, 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 the head of the table, or when they speak, you stop and you let them talk. Maybe it's remembering a special day. But find that cultural symbol that, that is important to them and, and, and honor them through that. Number two, let your parents see themselves be reproduced in you. Okay, so now I know that, now this is kind of hard because a lot of parents uh, are not honorable, at least that we don't, we, we see them and they're not, they're not been very good parents to a lot of us. In fact, half the parents are argu- arguably below average. Um, and that means a lot of parents are not, not only not good parents, they're wicked and mean parents. So, but you can always, because they're made in the image of God, there's still always something that you can emulate. You can say, I learned this from you, and I'm so thankful. I'm glad, I'm glad, I was, I'm glad you taught me that. I'm glad that I had this characteristic about you. I'm glad. So that's another way you can honor your mom and your dad. Uh, don't forget them in their old age. So when you're out of the house, it's, it's easy to not call them. It's easy just to kind of forget about them, maybe call them every once in a while. But they, they really... Uh, the, the initiative is really on our end now and not on their end. Uh, and as you get to my age, you start thinking about issues of, you know, taking care of your, your parents as they get older. And, and the last uh, bit of advice that he has is the hardest, I think. And this, this is you have to forgive your parents. Um, if, you, if you hold bitterness about your parents of anything, you need to forgive your parents. Uh, now, I had the wrong view for a long time that forgiveness can only be extended if someone else, if they first initiate an apology. And I was wrong. That, that, that's a transactional view of forgiveness where uh, it's, it's conditional. But this, the forgiveness that we're called to is unconditional and it's free. Now, they may, they may end up repenting or, or saying they're sorry, but that's not the reason why you're doing it. You have this this, this hurt that you're going to be tied to until you liberate them to absorb that pain. It's hard and forgive them for that. So that's, that's uh, the, the advice that Dr. Keller has. Now, after my dad had that fight, um, my dad about, uh, about a year after that came down to visit me at college. Um, and I was mad. I was a very, very mad uh, young man. And, and, but God sovereignly, through that process, led me to the Lord, and I was converted. And, and through that, that experience, God gave me a new heart and a new, and a new uh, alluding love for my dad. And I realized I was really angry, and I was punishing my dad. And so at dinner, he took me to a Chinese restaurant, 
And we, uh, we talked, and I, and I said, Dad, I just want to apologize because I've been doing X, Y, and Z to you, and that, that was wrong, and I'm sorry. And you know what he did? When I was down on the ground and low, uh, humbled myself, he just started kicking me. Like, you, you deserve it. I'm glad you said that because here's some other things I have against you. And it was hard. But outside the, 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 the sovereign spirit of God, he gave me self-control. I just held my tongue. And so, but that, I think that moment began a, a transformation, not only in my own heart, but in our relationship. Now, let's go to the, la- the third point. We've seen the family central to God's world. The wisdom is central to the family. Now, what is the center of wisdom? The center of wisdom is Jesus. Because the Bible says Jesus, in Jesus, is hidden all wisdom and knowledge, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Like he, there is so much wisdom in Jesus. It's not just, you see, wisdom is not just a principle and a precept. It is a person. And, and Jesus is, is the true prince who honors his father. And he honored his dad to go after the, his wayward wife. He, he kept himself pure from dang folly and listened to lady wisdom and pursued uh, wisdom all the way down to chase down and find this other lady who had been listening to Dame Folly and rescue her. He went to rescue this woman, this, this, this bride that he became his own, and paid for her price with his own life. And, and through that process, he also forgave his wife of all of her folly and foolishness. And now they're married and they're making, they're making the image of God renewed in all the earth. And that is the church. He has done that. He is the one who's done that. It's beautiful. He is wisdom. He is wisdom. Now, let me put it another way. The center of wisdom is not the family. Or let me put it this way. Family has become an idol, especially in America. And I'm assuming in, in, in Miami as well. Um, yes, it's central to the world the way God made the world, but it is not the end of all. It is important for organizing things, but, but it is not the, the, the most important thing in life. Um, and because, especially in the evangelical church, we have so elevated family, we have treated singles as if they were second class. As if that you're, I mean, you've been there, right? You've been to these churches where um, if you're not married with kids and you're not like kind of, what's wrong with you? You're like, it's, especially if you get older, you're like 40 and 50, like, what's wrong with you? I mean, that is, is wrong. Now, if you're like just being rebellious and, not, and you have someone in your life, you're, just not, you're not asking him to marry, that's another thing. But there are certain people who are called by God to be single all their life. The Bible has a word for that. That's celibate. Now, the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern, Eastern Orthodox Church even has pathways for those people to process that and to live fully for, uh, for, uh, flourishing lives. And so, I mean, I just wonder, I just wonder how much the American church, the evangelical church especially, has contributed to the confusion of, of gender issues, of the LGBTQ, you know, because there's so many people out there who have honest questions and honest struggles. They can't find a, a place of safety to, to, to explore these things in the church. And, and then so they, they come, and all they find is like, well, if you're not married with kids and you're out, 
And I just wonder how much the church is to blame for not affirming singleness and celibacy and that you can flourish as a single person as they are members of the family of God. And that's key. And that leads me to my last point, and we'll be done. Wisdom says, new preacher, preach fast. Don't, be, don't, don't preach too long. Um, so here we are. I'm almost done. God's family is central to Jesus' mission. And that's our last point. And so um, instead of going through some biblical uh, history with you, just let me just tell you it like this. God, when he saw the world falling apart from, from Adam, from the garden, to the flood, to the Tower of Babel, it just kept going down, down, down. The plan, think about this. The plan that God had to, rest, to, to redeem the world was through a 75-year-old father, Abraham, who was not a father yet. He was a husband, and he came to, in Genesis 12, out of the blue, he goes to, he goes to Abraham, and he says, through your family, Abraham, not through you individually, but through your family, you will bless all the families, all the families of the earth. And so it goes from this nuclear family to this tribe to this nation. But sadly, Israel, as they came from, from Abraham, they, they, they failed. They, they, they failed to be a blessing to the nations. They weren't a light to the nations. And so Jesus comes, and a lot of what he does is that he, as a true Israelite, as the true son, the seed of Abraham, he comes and he takes that responsibility on himself. And through his cross and resurrection, he makes a new community, a new, which is the church. The, now we are that new Israel. We are that new Israel. And, and through this new Israel, we are now bringing that blessing to the ends of the earth, to all the families of the earth. I love this quote by John Stott. If you don't know who John Stott is, he, he died recently, and he was celibate all of his life. He was a godly man. He lived in England. And this is one of, his, one of my favorite quotes from John Stott. He said, the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community for, God, for his purpose conceived in past eternity, being worked out in history and to be perfected in future eternity is not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate our loneliness, but rather to build his church. That is to call out of the world a people for his own glory. So in conclusion, I, I want to just kind of bring it down to what does this mean for us? And there's three invitations. And the first invitation is, if you're not a member yet of the fan, this, in, this eternal, international, multi-ethnic, multi-generational family, this is a great time for you to do that. And the, and the way you do that is you just trust in the blood of Jesus because his blood is thicker than all of our family lines. The blood of Jesus is thicker and, and more because our families come and go, right? I am the last Smith stand. No, I'm not saying the last Smith in the world, but in my family, I tried to have a boy. I have four girls. And I told my grandfather before he died, he's like, I, I, I said, I tried four times. And he couldn't believe that I was. And I said, look, I think I'm the last one who can perpetuate the name of Smith. He got on the phone, figured it out. That's it. Unless I, unless I adopt a, a son, there are, will be no more Smiths. Not that we're lacking Smiths. In Miami, maybe, but not anywhere else. <laughs> so families come and go, but the family of Christ endures forever. And so trusting in Jesus 
for your sins, repenting of that. I'm inviting you to do that if you've never done that. If you want to talk to someone about what does that mean to become a member of the family of God. It's, it is an amazing family. Yes, we are messy. Yes, we are broken. Yes, we got our issues. Yes, we can be mean and nasty. But it is Jesus' family. And we are, uh, we are it's a great family. The second is an invitation to become not only a member of God's family, but to become a member of a local church. Now, we would love for you, if you're not a member of Crossbridge yet, and you're still investigating, we would love for you to come to Taste of Crossbridge to try to figure that out. And if, and if Crossbridge is not a place that you think that is, is a home for you, my encouragement to you as, your, as a pastor is find some place that is. A, a Bible-believing church that loves the city, that believes in the Bible. Find some place where you can flourish, especially if you're single. Because you're not going to survive in Miami if you're just hopping around from one place to another. You're only going to survive. And there's no perfect church out there. You just got to figure out, like, where God is calling you, where the spirits are moving, and just dive in somewhere. Because a lot of us, see, look, this, I'm, I'm afraid that a lot of us view the church as one more ball that we have to juggle in an already busy schedule. But really what the church is, it's the hub of life. It's really where we find our, it organizes our life. It's, it's not one more thing we have to do. It organizes us, and it gives us our Christ-like shape. And the last thing is if you're already in, in our midst, you're already visiting, you're already a member, and you haven't yet uh, found a community group, Join a community group. We're, this is the perfect time to do that. We are, we are relaunching them uh, very soon, and we're going to not only deepen in community and friendship, but each, each uh, community group is developing plans on how they can love the city and how they can love their area, their hood, their, their uh, vecindario, if you will. And so, um, uh, you know, you are already as a church doing this. My mom visited a couple weeks ago, and she, we had the... Polo tropical chicken in the back. And, and when we, we ate the chicken, and you were so nice to my mother. You know what she did? Well, I live in Podunk, South Arkansas, okay? The only thing that we got going for us there is if, you go, if you've been to a Walmart and you've been to their gas station, there's a thing called Sam, uh, no, Sam no, is it, no, Murphy, USA, Murphy, USA. That's, that's in El Dorado, Arkansas. It's the headquarters. I don't know why it's there. But they have recruited about 50 to 60 millennial professionals, okay? Just, now, now, just imagine, just imagine this. Imagine yourself being, you were having to go work in South Arkansas and how much of a culture shock that would be for you. Well, there's people like that in my hometown, and she recognized that when she was here. And so she went home and got on the phone, and she's like, there's no restaurant or bar for them to hang out in, so I'm going to let them hang out in my home once a week. And that's because she saw what you do here. Isn't that amazing? Now, that's my mom. Let me get back to my dad and we'll be done. So God has begun to heal my relationship with my dad. Uh, when we moved, we used to be missionaries in Peru for 10 years. And we moved, we, we moved back to uh, my home state of Arkansas. And my dad had a, a free house next to his. So we landed right next door to him. And it was such a, it was such a good good experience. We had all this negative history. I mean, every time we visited, it would end up in this, this knockdown argument, verbal fight, and it was always awkward and hard, and other things would happen. And, and so during this, this season, God just began to rewire our relationship and heal us. And, and now he has become one of my closest friends. And I'm, I'm dreaming now. We dream together now. We play together. We go on vacations and he just keeps blessing us over and over and over. Like this past week, 
he texts us after our girls went to school. And um, he's like, all right, you're, you're in school now. And we, I would love to buy shoes for all of your girls because I know girls like shoes. And so he's now buying shoes for all of my four daughters. All, actually, he said for all the family. He does stuff like that. And, I'm, and we're dreaming that maybe he can become a snowbird and move to Miami and, and buy a house with us or something like that. But that is something, a story of redemption. I want that for you. But it's more important than what I want. God wants that for you. So let's follow Lady Wisdom. And let's follow Wisdom himself, Jesus Christ. And God will begin to rewire our world together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wisdom. It's hard. And we can't do it by, by wisdom alone. It's by, by grace alone, through Christ alone, that we can do these things. So we come now to the table we come now to receive your grace again because we cannot, we do not have the energy. We do not have the, the wisdom. We do not have the power to do this. So, Father, we come now as needy people. We come now because we need Jesus and we want more of him to be wise in all of our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.